Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, please, this morning. Yeah, we're doing it. Revelation <laughs> chapter 1. By way of introduction, as you make your way there, just, just hang it right, go all the way to the end of the Bible, that's where Revelation is. So, so as you're making your way there, I, I don't know how many of you saw it, but there this last week on Tuesday in New Jersey, there, there was a, a radio broadcast that, that was for a couple of hours, it was on AM 1630, that's their emergency broadcast channel, and all of a sudden, randomly, and the, the, obviously I wasn't in Jersey to see this, but some guy videotaped, he put it on YouTube, and it's blowing up the internet right now, people are losing their minds over this, basically, it's this creepy animatronic voice, and it just repeats itself over and over, Trump will go 26th. Trump will go 26th. It went for like two hours. Now, it's unsettling. I, pre- I, I played it for Brenda, and she freaked out. She's like, turn it off. I don't want to hear that. People are like, that's demonic, man. That's just weird. Um, Shirley, my secretary, came over to the house, and, and she was dropping something off. I go, you got to hear this. And Brenda's like, oh, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. Just did not want to hear it. She goes, you're not, I told her I was going to use it as an introduction. She goes, you're not going to play that, are you? And no, honey, I won't play it. Just because just, just you're here. I would have played it for you all. You can blame Brenda. Anyway, it's just this creepy thing. Now, people are making all kinds of stuff about it. They're, they're like, Trump will go 26. What's it mean? It's some sort of sign. Somebody's going to assassinate Trump. On the 26th, that's the first day of his, of their, you know, the first debate is tomorrow, the 26th. And so, so that's what it is. Or, you know, some people think, you know, it's, it's a demonic message. Some people are like, it's a message from God. He's going to judge. Some people are saying, no, you know what? This is like Manchurian candidate kind of stuff. This is programming. And some guy just got his trigger to go and do what he was supposed to do. Uh, some people are saying that. Other people are saying, you know, gosh, this is just the, the signal for a terrorist or for a hitman or something like that. And then you've got other people who are basically saying, this is just a big joke. This is a whole lot about nothing, you know. This is some electronic message that, that you know, traffic message that got truncated and is just, you know, stuck on uh, like a skipping CD kind of thing. Which is it? Inquiring minds want to know, what is it? Nobody knows. Now, I tell you that story by way of introduction to the book of Revelation because a lot of people relate to the book of Revelation like this radio message. They're like, they're thinking, wow, this is a strange message and nobody knows what it is. That's not the case. No, the book of Revelation, not only can it be understood, but, but God wants us to understand it. A lot of people say, well, Revelation is a closed book. It's not, we can't, we, can, we don't understand it. Because, you know, it's a, it's a it's highly, you know, it's an imagery kind of book. It's, it's all about visions and, and pictures. And people are, are saying, well, gosh, that's just something that's closed to us. No, it's not. No, it's not. It can be understood. And God wants us to understand it. And so you say, okay, well, what does God want us to understand? Well, let's find out. Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw 
And, and, and so he says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. For starters, right there, John starts out, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You could circle that word revelation if you wanted to. Nearby, you could write apocalypse. That's what revelation means. It's, it comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. Apocalypse. Now, we in our culture, we see apocalypse as being synonymous with catastrophe and chaos. But that's not what the word apocalypse means. Apocalypse means literally unveiling or uncovering or bringing out into the open. And that's the purpose of this book. To unveil, to uncover, to bring out into the open who? The person and work of Jesus Christ. And his plan for the redemption of mankind. His plan for the world. That's what this is. It's an unveiling of Jesus and his plan for the end times. And so we read here that God the Father gave this revelation to Jesus Christ. And Jesus then unveiled it to his servants. And how did he do that? Well, he did so, the text tells us, by using an angel to signify the revelation to John. Now, there's another word you could circle if you were given to that in the end of chapter 1. It's the word signified. The word signified, it means to show by a sign. And the sign that John was given was a series of visions. And these visions that John was given make up the entire book. Highly imagery. And, And so... A vision in the biblical sense, to understand it, it's a glimpse into the spirit world that exists all around us. And and we can't see this spiritual world with our natural eyes, but God can reveal it to us. It's just like right now, all around us, we're surrounded by radio waves. You can't see them, but if you have a receiver that's tuned in, you will hear... Trump will go, 26th. No, you won't hear that. But you will hear whatever radio frequency is going through our room. You'll hear that. Why? Because you have the capacity to tune into it. And so what happens here is that John is given the capacity by God to have this vision, and he sees into the spiritual realm. And the spirit realm is an eternal realm. And being an eternal realm... There, in that realm, you can see past, you can see present, and you can see future. And actually, if you'll skip ahead, look at verse 19 with me. What you'll see is that Jesus gives us there, he indicates to John that his visions are going to involve all three. They're going to involve past and present and future. Here's what he says. He says, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Now, this is like the only book of the Bible where God actually gives you the outline of the book in one verse. This is the outline and the, the, the grid through which we can understand the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.19. And so he says, write down, first of all, the things which you have seen. He's speaking here of the vision that John has of Jesus in chapter 1. So write down the things you've seen. Secondly, he says, write down the things which are. And what he's speaking of here is the state of the church 
of John's present day. And so this is uh, chapters 2 and 3. Hey, write down the state of the church. Write down the things that are. What's, what's the you are here of, of what's going on with you? That's the churches in, two, in chapters 2 and 3. And then he says, write down the things which will take place after this. Metatautau is the, the way it's written. After these things. And so... This is speaking of the last days. This is the rest of the book from chapter 4 through the end of chapter 22. This is saying what happens after God is, is, is done here with this church. And after all the things that are right now in the church age, what comes after this? This is the rest of the book. Now, notice as we continue here that the book comes with a blessing. We read it there in verse 3. And there's a couple of things to note there in verse 3. First of all, is that there's three conditions to the blessing. We're promised a blessing for, for going through this book, but there's three conditions to that blessing. First of all, we have to read the book. Secondly, we have to hear the words that are spoken. And, and thirdly, we have to keep them. Now, this should sound familiar because we pray this every single week, you know, just in the, in the heart and, and praying what, what James had said, uh, who echoes the same, the same sentiment in James 1 and 22, that we're not to be hearers of the, uh, hearers of the world. He says, be doers of the world, not of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So often what happens is that people will hear the things of God and in their life, they, they, they go, well, yeah, I believe that. But then they go out and they live in such a way that their actions demonstrate that they don't really believe what they say they believe. They believe it academically, but they don't believe it practically. And so what, what John is saying here is that, look, you have to not just be a hearer of the word, but you, you have to read it, you have to hear it and comprehend what it's saying, and then you have to put feet on your faith, and you actually have to do it. So that's the first thing to notice there in verse 3. The second thing to notice in verse 3, verse three is that John says that the time is near. The time is near. Now, there, there, there's, there's two things there. First of all, time. The word is kiros, and here's what it means. It means a fixed and a definite time. In other words, this time is set in stone. It ain't changing. And then he says of this fixed and definite time that is not changing, he says, secondly, that it's near. Literally, what that means is that the time is at hand. In other words, the time is imminent. Time's imminent. Now, keep in mind that this was written 2,000 years ago. And so if the time was imminent... 2,000 years ago, what does that mean for us today? Holy moly, time is imminent. Now, we think of the end of time like, you know, this is a cliff, and we're running headlong towards the cliff, and pretty soon we're going to reach the cliff, and we're going to go off. And, and that's not really the best picture. The better picture is that we're running alongside a cliff, and that at any moment, we're going to go off of that cliff. It's just a matter of where we're at. Now, here's the way to understand this. this fixed, how can, it's a fixed and definite time. And when is this time? We know it's near. But how do we reconcile this? The Lord just sort of gave me this illustration. I think about, think about a soccer game. Any of you soccer fans? Okay, I apologize. I hate soccer. I think it's the stupidest game in the world. Um, <laughs> tell us what you really think, Pastor. It's just... 
I'd rather watch a hockey game. I mean, you see a guy who spits out five teeth and is laying his own pool of blood, and then he gets up and he keeps going. But in a soccer game, you know, you brush up against someone, and they're like, oh, they're laying on the ground like you just killed them, you know. Just come on. But, but soccer, now, and in any other sport, too, you watch, they've got time limits, and, you, and it's like you're in the, you know, it's the final countdown. And you're going there and it's, you know, they got two seconds left in the game and then the game's over, right? Winner, loser. Soccer doesn't work that way. Soccer, they have this thing called stoppage time. You know what stoppage time is? It's just there to mess with your head. That's what it is. Because here's the thing. Stoppage time, the idea is they don't want people delaying the game unnecessarily or using that to their advantage. So, you know, the ball goes out of bounds and they have to, you know, inbound the ball. Well, when the ball's out of bounds and the other team has to get it and throw it in, that time that there was stoppage of play, there's actually a guy who has responsibility to keep track of stoppage time. And he, and he keeps track of all the time in the game. And so, you know, the game gets to three, two, one, zero. Hey, guess what? The game's not over. Because now they're playing for all the stoppage time. It's usually around six minutes or so, somewhere in there, whatever. But nobody knows. The only person who knows is the referee, and he ain't telling. He just, he'll just tell you when it's over, and you know when it's over, because he blows his whistle, and when he blows his whistle, game over. Well, we can take a walk with this for us, that what John is saying, through the vision that God has given to him, is that... We live in stoppage time. That's where we're living right now. And you don't know when God's going to be like, everybody out. But it's coming. And it can happen at any moment. And when it happens, baby, it's game over. Which is sobering right now for us if we are here, you're here, if you're outside of a relationship with Christ today. If you are living your life in such a way to where if I ask you the question, hey man, if, if the whistle blows and it's game over, are you ready to stand before the Lord today? Man, that's something for us to think about. Take a prayerful walk with, we live in stoppage time. And some of y'all, man, today before you leave this place, you, gotta, you have to get right with Jesus. You, you, you just have to come to him and just say, man, I, I'm not ready for the whistleblow, Lord. I want to be ready. Help. And you need to understand that God's word says that, hey, listen, he loves you. It's not, it's not such a thing that, that, you know, the way that God interacts with us is that we got to get our life cleaned up and we got to get to a place to where I'm good enough to go stand before God to where, hey, now my good way it works out way my bad works. It doesn't work like that. The Bible says your good, way, your good works will never outweigh your bad works. And the only hope for us is to come to God and prevail upon his grace. Say, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. The Bible says when we make that confession, if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, if we, if we confess with our mouth that, that, hey, God raised him from the dead, I believe that. I'm going to trust in that. God says you'll be saved. You'll be cleansed, you'll be forgiven. And when the whistle blows, when it's game over, you don't lose. So John says, hey man, that's how it is with God. Any second it's going to be game over. And so he writes there in verse, verses 4 and 5, he says, John, 
And this has just been sort of the preamble up until this point, and now he's getting into the addressing to the churches as he's commanded to do. He says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Here's what what John is saying here. Basically, he starts off with a greeting to the churches, to the seven churches. This is a reference to seven actual churches that existed in his day, but it's also symbolic of the churches of our day and age. And we'll get more into that in in, uh, just a little bit. But basically, he's he's addressing the churches. Um, And by the way, what is the church? It's you. It's us. It's you know. It's it's the the person sitting next to you. It's all. It's all y'all. Okay. So so basically, when he says he's talking to the seven churches, who is he talking to? He's talking to us. He's talking to you, which is going to become very powerful in the weeks to come. As we as because God's got some very pointed things to say to the particular churches, which means he's got some very pointed things to say to you. So so he's John's writing to these churches. Um, but who's he writing it from? Well, he tells us, first of all, it's from God the Father, the one who was, who is, who is to come. And then he says it's also this letter that he's writing. It's from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's an, it's an Old Testament uh, um, description of the Holy Spirit. We get it from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. It tells us there, I'll throw it on the screen for you, the Spirit of the Lord, that's one, shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, that's two, and the Spirit of understanding, that's three, the Spirit of counsel, four, might, five, and the Spirit of knowledge, six, and the fear of the Lord, seven. And so when when he says, this is from the seven spirits, the idea is that seven's the number of completion, it speaks to the perfection and the completion of of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, look, I'm writing to you, churches. I'm writing from a message that I'm giving you from the Father. I'm writing a message that I'm giving, to you, giving you from the Holy Spirit. And then he adds there in verse 5 that he's also giving you a message from Jesus Christ. So we have here the Trinity all packaged here. This is a message from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit to the church And now he continues there in verse 5, at the end of it, he says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us, verse 6, kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, because of him. Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus is coming and that when he comes, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ to the glory of God the Father. This is what's being said here. Hey, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye is going to see him and so on. And verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos 
uh, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, it's the day of the Lord. When he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, it's not talking about the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord to judge heaven and earth. When he, when he says it's the Lord's day, he's just, it's, he's just talking about it's Sunday, basically. Hey, I, I'm, I'm just, it's Sunday and I'm in the Spirit. By the way, simple sentence, but, but how's, how's that for a prescription? That's not a bad idea, is it? It's Sunday, you're in church. How about being in the Spirit, right? How is it that Sunday, sometimes we have the worst fights of all, then, you know, getting the kids ready, getting in the, on the car on the way to church, it's like, you know, World War III, and then, and then we come in, you know, from the signal, and we start encountering people, it's like, oh, hi, how you doing? Everything's great. Hey, being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and by the way, this may apply to you even right now, maybe even through worship and through, you know, the teaching of the Word, maybe even right now you're still in the flesh. And maybe even right now you could just say, Lord, I want to be in the Spirit. It's as simple as that. It's not an emotion. It's a decision. It's just a matter of just saying, God, I want to be in the Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit. You know, I've, I've come here to, to, to meet with you. I've had a bad day, God. Help a brother out, man. I just need to be in the Spirit right now, God. So he's, he says, I'm in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And again, there, hey, look, you want to hear from God? Be in the Spirit. Just be in the Spirit, man, and you're going to hear the voice of God. And so he hears this voice, and, he's, and the voice is saying, verse 11, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, speaking of modern-day Turkey, and now he lists them. He says, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned, John says, to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. (coughs) His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire." His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, speaking of God's word, sharper than a two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was. Uh, I'm him, he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. What a beautiful picture of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades, and of death. In other words, I'm large and in charge. Uh, Verse 19, write the things which you've seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So John here, he's doing just that. He's writing down the things that God has shown him. He's, He's detailing the vision of Jesus 
uh, just as the Lord has commanded him to do. And that's going to set the tone for the entire rest of the book that follows. And as he does that, write the things that you have seen is the first exhortation of verse 19. And so as he does that, <clears throat> there's three things that he writes about. Write the things that you have seen. Okay, here it is. He lists it out. There's three things he covers here. Uh, and, and basically the rest of the message is going to center on these three things that we've just read that he writes about <clears throat> in the vision that God gave him. Number one, he explains the circumstances through which he received the vision. Secondly, he identifies the churches for whom he received the vision. And thirdly, he begins to unveil Christ's message to the churches through the vision. And there's a lot here for us to pick up right now. So, so first of all, let's start with John as he explains the circumstances through which he received the vision. Look there again at verse 9. What's he say? He says, I, John, speaking to the churches, he says, both your brother and companion... In the tribulation. In other words, you guys are going through it. You're going through tribulation. You're going through hardship. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But this first century church, especially, and we all face tribulation and hardship. These guys, they got the t-shirt, man. And he's saying, I'm, I know what you're going through, and I've gone through it with you. Um, I'm your brother and companion in the tribulation. And he continues, uh, kingdom and, and uh, patient, patience of Jesus Christ. He says, I was, basically, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what John's saying here is basically he says, look, <clears throat> I, 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 was, I, I was doing time on Alcatraz is what he was saying. Patmos was their equivalent of Alcatraz. The only difference between the two um, is that on Patmos, you had to do hard labor. The guys who went to Alcatraz, they had three hots and a cot. They just had to sit around on what they called the rock. But, but in, on Patmos, it was a rocky island too. It was a stone quarry. And the, and the guys that got sent there had to do hard labor. Even John, who at this time is like 95 years old. So he's saying, listen, I'm suffering with you. I'm in the same trials as you guys. I totally get it. I've been on Patmos. And church history basically says this. There's this intense persecution that comes at this time. And, you know, the, the, the Roman emperor has, has John dipped in a vat of oil, hot oil, to kill him. So boiling oil he gets dipped into and it doesn't kill him. And you can imagine that it disfigured him. But he's not dead. And so he's like, well, what am I going to do with him now? Send him to Patmos and put him to work. So that's the conditions that John has gone through. And notice why John was persecuted, treated so horribly. He says, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Every time you take a stand for Jesus Christ, you are going to suffer persecution. Now, in the United States, we, we, you know, persecution for us doesn't even compare to the first century church, but it, it's getting worse all the time. Now, back in the late 60s, when they took prayer out of school, and then as you know, legislation began to change and attitudes started to change, and more and more there were freedoms that Christians once enjoyed that were being taken away, and those that were seeing this were saying, hey, look, it's going to pretty soon become illegal to be a Christian. And, to, and, and everybody was saying, oh, come on, you guys, you, you know, you're high. Give me a break. And 
that's not so funny anymore. You see pastors getting threatened to go to jail now. I mean, in Canada, it's gotten so bad that if you broadcast certain sections of the book of Romans, they'll throw you in jail for a hate crime. So, so things are going in that direction. So we understand persecution that, hey man, if, if, if I'm going to take a stand for Christ, I'm going to suffer persecution. I'm going to suffer persecution from the world, from the courts, from my professors, from my neighbors, hey, even sometimes from my family and my friends. Now, and again, it pales in comparison to the first century, and I don't mean to equate the two, but there is persecution when you stand up for the Lord. And Jesus said it would be that way. Here's what he told his disciples. He said, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And indeed, every single one of Jesus' disciples were killed for their faith. John's the only one left. Listen to what preceded John. John here, he's 95-ish years old, and he's writing this letter, and now what about all John's companions? What about all the other apostles? What about the, the other disciples? Well, James, his brother, was beheaded. Matthias, the guy that, you know, they cast lots for who was going to replace Judas, and the lot fell to him. Matthias was tied down and, and eaten alive by vultures. Jude was crucified, and then they shot him with arrows and killed him. Nathaniel was skinned alive, and then they crucified him. Philip was hanged, Andrew was crucified, Matthew was beheaded, uh, James, Jesus' half-brother, the, the, the son of Mary and Joseph, he was thrown from the roof of the temple and killed, Thomas was impaled on a stick and, and left to die, Mark was dragged behind a chariot and killed, in that fashion Luke was crucified, Paul was beheaded. And church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. Paul's the, or rather, John's the only one left, and there are countless others that had suffered. I mean, it was horrible persecution. The Roman government was being brutal to people. Nero, would, he would take Christians, and he'd, and he'd put them on poles in his garden, and he'd set them on fire, and then he would drive his chariot naked through the gardens and he would mock the Christians as they burned to death. He'd say, you are the light of the world, you know, as they're burning to death. Or he would take Christians and he would tie them up in, in animal skins and he'd throw them to the lions. Christians were getting sawn in two, literally sawn in two. It was a horrible time. In other words, this wasn't exactly a seeker-sensitive church, okay? This was a difficult time. Now, but listen, here's the thing. In every one of these situations, <coughs> every one of these men that, that I've just described for you, they had one thing in common. You know what that was? They all saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And what happened in their hearts, listen, nobody willingly dies for a lie. This is one of the greatest proofs that the gospel is true because you had all of these men who very willingly <coughs> went, to the, went to their deaths just, just worshiping God. This is, this, hey, this is, this is how, man, I'm, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to give my life for him. And you go, oh, gosh, all of these guys were killed. What does that do for the kingdom? I heard a story about George Patton. 
And, um, and I, I think it's true. I think it, it shows up in the, in the movie that they did, Patton. But basically, <clears throat> Patton is famously quoted as saying, hey, nobody ever won a war dying for his country. He wins a war by making some other poor slob die for his country. And that was George Patton's philosophy. And, and the, the problem with that is that that's not how the kingdom of God works. Jesus said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, Jesus said, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, will find it. See, what I want you to understand is that amazing things happen when a godly man is crushed. And maybe today you're being crushed. Maybe you're going through a time of intense persecution, of intense trials. Maybe you're in a time of you're thinking, where are you, God? I thought you loved me. You feel like, you know, it feels like you're a million miles away. What did I ever do to you kind of thing? And, and you're going through that. And you need to understand that sometimes God allows his saints to be crushed so that he can bring some beautiful harvest through them and through their lives. Right now, John is being crushed on the island of Patmos having been boiled alive and now being languishing out to die, this is where God, what God prescribes for him and where he puts him so that he's uniquely ready just to, to receive from the Lord and to have the visions that God would give him. We don't know why. He's the great physician. We're not. But God knew this is what's going to be required because what I want to do right now is I want to give a message to my people, to the churches who at this time, chronologically, church is about 60 years old-ish. We're talking a new generation. We're talking about, you know, a church that's being brutally persecuted. And we're maybe talking about people who are saying, what on earth? Why are we, why are we dying for this? And God's saying, they need a vision of me. They need to be encouraged. And so in order to do that, I need to crush this man and we see God doing this the way he operates. If you look in Acts chapter 8, you see a picture there where it's the, it's the early church. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And, the, and he's told his believers, you know, wait for the gifting of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> and you get to about Acts chapter 8, and they're still in Jerusalem. And things are great in Jerusalem. I mean, they've got favor with everybody, and the Lord's adding daily to the church such as should be saved. And they got the, they're like, why would we ever want to leave? This is awesome. Kind of like your teenage kid. He's like, yeah, things are pretty good here. Why do I want to leave? You're like, because as it turns out, you need to get a job. They ain't going to get here, pretty, be here good for you very long. You make it uncomfortable for them. You still, like a, 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 you know, an eagle starts pulling the feathers out of the nest. They do this. Why? Because it's time, you know, knock, knock. Who's there? Not you anymore. Time to go, you know. So, so God allows persecution to come against this church in Acts. Saul shows up. He he. He kills Stephen, first martyr of the church. And then he's not satisfied just with that. He's got letters to go after all the other. So he's killing Christians left and right. And he's putting them in jail and the whole thing. And you would think that that would kill the church. The exact opposite happened. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, just a few verses later, after this intense persecution, we read, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. And the Bible says they went immediately throughout Judea and Samaria. Just, hey, Jesus said, you'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. 
And so these guys, they went immediately throughout Judea, Samaria. We see Philip. He goes to Samaria, starts a megachurch there, has great favor. Why? Because God allowed him to go through persecution and be crushed. But now great things are happening. Ultimately, men like Paul are going to go to the ends of the earth. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So John here, he's the last remaining apostle. He's on Patmos. He's in his 90s. It's 96 A.D., And now God's got him in a place where he can bring a vision of hope and an exhortation to the churches who are hurting. I love this quote from G. Campbell Morgan. He says, The church of Christ persecuted has always been the church of Christ pure. But the church of Christ patronized has always been the church of Christ impure. Cool quote. Here's the idea. If you want a deep faith, you got to go through deep things. Well, the second thing John does as he writes out the vision that God gave to him, is that now John identifies the churches for whom he received the vision. He's explained the circumstances under which he got the vision. Now he's identifying the churches for whom he received the vision. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we're going to get into this over the next several weeks. But basically what I want you to understand is that Jesus has a message for these churches. And these churches, there's a threefold application to these churches. As, as we read through this list, the Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, and so on. So, so what are these churches? Well, it's threefold. Number one, it's actual churches that existed during John's day. As a matter of fact, John was, uh, was one of the pastors of the church at Ephesus. Paul was a pastor at Ephesus. Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus. John was a pastor at Ephesus. And, and, and supposedly, John not only pastored the church there at Ephesus, but he also oversaw all the other churches that are listed here. And so the first sense of, of, of the significance of this is that it, there's a contemporary sense to this message. In other words, the message applied to the local churches that John was familiar with. Hey, I got a, I got a message for you today, real time. But it also is, is there's a message in the composite sense. And here's what I mean by that, that each church is a composite. Each one of these churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, and so on, they're a composite or or, or a picture for us of, of the church today. And again, the church is us individually here. And so the, the, the idea here is Jesus got a message when he talks, for instance, to the church at Ephesus and he says, look, I got to tell you all this stuff you got going on and you're doing great, but there's one thing you lack You've lost your first love. You're doing all the right things for for, for all the wrong reasons. So, basically, the the gig here is that, man, there's a composite message for us as we go through this. And God's going to, he's going to, I mean, (laughs) it's going to get brutal over the next several weeks that God's going to be speaking to some people up in here. You know, and he's going to be putting his finger on that thing. He's going to be saying, look, you got, you got this going on, you got that going on, but right here 
is a come-to-Jesus moment in your life. And so, so that's important. The third thing that in, in these messages for the churches, not only is it a contemporary sense for the churches that existed in John's day, and not only is it a composite sense for us, a picture of where we're at, potentially. Thirdly, in a chronological sense, hey, it's, it's been suggested and, and, and pretty, pretty well that these churches, maybe in the prophetic timeline, they just they sort of go through the seasons of church of where the church is throughout history, and so you know the church is in this phase and in the you know Ephesus phase and the Smyrna phase and the Pergamos phase. It's interesting to look at, and we're going to take a look at that, uh, you know, in the the days to come. But John here he's writing out the things that he's seen, you know. And, and so, so this is, this is his, his marching orders from the Lord. Look, I want you right now, I want you to, to, to write out in chapter 1 the things that you've seen. And as he does that, he's explained his circumstances. This is, this is the conditions under which I got the message. He's identified the churches. Hey, this is the people that the messages is for. And now in closing, thirdly, John begins to unveil Christ's message to the church through his vision. Okay? He begins to unveil Christ's message to the church through his vision. Now, Jesus is, as I've said, he's going to have some very specific things to say about each church and also to every single one of us. This is why, as we'll see, after every exhortation, he says, to he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's going to have some very specific things to say to us, but right here as he details the vision, write the things that you've seen. Here in chapter 1, there's a powerful word of, of comfort to the church, to you, to me. And the vision that he gives is this. It's the vision of a victorious king. Here's why that's powerful and here's why we need it today. Because I don't, I, don't, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you are today. At some moment, at some point in time, it's our time in the barrel when we're, um, when we're there going, God, where are you? Don't you see? Don't you care? feels like you're a million miles away. What's happening here? Why, you know, why am I going through this? And some of you are there today. Some of us, just in prayer for our church this morning, as we gather together, you know, pray early in the morning. And just praying for so many people here in, in our church, brothers and sisters, that are going through absolute horrible trials right now. And for them, the temptation is to say, God, you've forsaken me. Where are you, God? And as John begins to unveil this image that he is, has of Christ that we read here in chapter 1, listen, what he's saying is, hey, you know what? Our king is in heaven, and he's victorious. He's ruling, and he's reigning. He has the keys to, to Hades and to death. He's large and in charge. And no matter what you're going through, and no matter what you're up against today, listen, the big takeaway right now is that we win in the end. We win. Our, all is well in the kingdom of God. 
See, here's what John is saying. John says, look, I'm writing to tell you it's all true. I've seen it. God reigns in heaven. You can have peace and joy because of his grace. He's, he's, he's sharing, and these are all the things that this vision, as he says, this is what I saw. These are, this is what it tells us. That we have peace and joy because of his grace. That he loves us and he's washed us with his own blood. This is the image, the picture, the message that Jesus gives. He says that he's made us kings and priests. That we're going to rule and reign with God. And he reminds us, listen, he's coming quickly. And I'm telling, that, I'm telling you that because I love you. And I, 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 the Bible says that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come into everlasting life, into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, more than that, Jesus says that he's with us right now. He says he's standing in the midst of us right now. Where do I get that? Look at verse 20 as we close. He says, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. See, this is imagery. We're seeing this picture and we read these words and people are going, well, what's this mean? Well, he tells us right here what it means. He says, let me tell you what's up with the seven stars. Let me tell you what's up with the golden lampstands. He says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now that word angels, when he says the the stars are the angels of the churches, here's basically what that means. It's angels, maybe not the best translation, it's messenger. And so basically what he's saying is, look, there are churches and I'm in the midst of them. And the dude that's in charge, I'm holding him in my right hand. The pastor of that church, the one who speaks for me, I'm holding him in my hand. God would say to you, listen, not only do I have your pastor in my hand, but I'm in your midst. And here's why that's important. It's important because he tells us there in verse 14 that his eyes are like a flame of fire. In other words, listen, there's nothing that's hidden from him. And we can come together in church and we can trust God's here. The Bible says we're two or more gathered in his name, that he's there in the midst. And we come together and we say, God, you're here in the midst. I can trust you. I can depend upon you. And I can know that you're going to speak to me, that you're going to watch over me, and that you're going to care for me. And right now what God says to us through this vision is this. Hey, I see you. I know you. And I've got you. Do you believe that this morning?